Welcome to the African Youth Voices Podcast, where we explore the opinions of the youth of Africa. Here's your host, Sufyan Tubani. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of the African Youth Voices Podcast. Today, we have a special guest from the United States. His name is Ali Karim. Ali Karim is a debater in the American debate circuit, but he has a lot of local, regional, and international debate experience. Uh, we would like to welcome him on the episode today because he observed our last episode where we talked about the inequalities in Moroccan society and he had a lot of follow-up ideas and also wanted to give us an American perspective on that so we would love to have him we were so happy to have him on the show and we're going to get to know him a little bit more but before we get into that let's just have him give a short introduction about yourself how you got into debating and anything else you'd like to share with our audience yeah well thank you very much um for that excellent introduction uh, so yeah, my name's Arik. I'm uh, currently a high school junior. I'm 16 years old. I've been debating for roughly four or five years now, and it's really an activity that I'm truly passionate about. I find that I've dedicated a lot of my time to debating and really working with others and trying to perfect their craft as well as uh, mine. And I really have like such a profound, deep appreciation for what this activity has really done for me. So what I wanted to discuss with you today was um, the numerous sets of inequities, um, both within society and how that parallels with inequities that we see in debate and offer some ideas for solutions and how we can move forward for an activity that I'm sure that I and so many others, you know, want to see grow and, and thrive. Okay, so thank you very much for that very detailed introduction. Um, could you tell us a little bit more like how you got into debating? Was it like something that you saw and you were just uh, influenced into it or something that you just like came across by chance? Yeah. So um, the reason I started debating um, was actually somewhat humorously started out of a grudge. So back in middle school, um, I was involved or uh, I was placed into a debate elective class. And, um, you know, I was really, really in the mindset or the mentality of I need to defend one side. Like this is what I believe in. I can't like look at anything from any other perspectives. So I was assigned a classroom topic um, or like debate discussion about uh, whether or not texting and driving should be a felony. And I was begging the teacher to place me on the proposition. I was like, I cannot defend the opposition. There is in no world would I ever be able to do this. And really the fate of me participating in speech and debate from then on was really, um, you know, placed on 50-50 chance of my teacher pulling a popsicle stick and being like, you have proposition, you have opposition. So I found myself to have been assigned opposition. Um, uh, so yeah, that's how I ultimately was able to ch be challenged by the fact that I need to be able to look at things from multiple perspectives. And from there, I was really able to develop those critical thinking skills that are so necessary in debate. And that's what really made me fall in love. Okay. So from the document that you sent me, it seems like you're very active in the world schools debating field and also British parliamentary. I actually remember there was one competition where I was supposed to judge you, but somehow there was a switch last minute. So yeah. <laughs> what are some yeah. competitions that you've, you've attended? Yeah, so I've attended the Croatia Winter Holidays Open. I've attended the Stanford Tournament. Um, I've attended the Zimbabwe International High School Debating Championship, um, as well as like numerous other instances, both like locally, regionally, nationally. Um, so in terms of competitive experience, I really started to compete a lot internationally, really at the start of the 
pandemic, um, given that a lot of online international competitions really picked up the speed and the pace of really embracing the online format. So um, yeah, just like a lot of competitions that were available online, I really try to make use of like Malaysia International World Schools Debating Championship, um, Eurasian Schools Debating Championship, so on and so forth. Okay. Um, so is debating something you want to continue and at the university level, or is it just something you want to finish at high school and just focus on university classes when you get to uh, the university uh, level? Yeah, I think I would definitely want to continue debating um, on the university level. And I find that um, the formats that are often used are, are varied, but they're, they're quite similar. Like British parliamentary, for example, is very frequently um, you know, adopted by many universities around the world. So it's been something that I've kind of dipped my toes into and I find to be like a very, very nice, interesting change of pace from the regular, um, you know, two teams kind of like round where you now you have four um, so it's really something that's like intrigued me and I've found more utility and more, you know, benefits to debating than just for like any resume or accolades. Um, I've really found a, a lot of profound, you know, appreciation and, and just enjoyment for, for debating in general. So I would definitely seek to continue in college. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So now that we've gotten to know you a little bit more and our audience has a little bit a better idea of who you are and your debating background, um, so I would like to like break down this podcast into like maybe two parts. Maybe the first part, mm -hmm. we can just like touch on some of the things that were said by our Moroccan speakers. I'm oh, sorry, Moroccan debaters about the inequalities and the issues they face as women in Morocco. And then we can uh, move on to the second part, which would be like your perspective on that as an American debater in the American circuit. I think you've touched on some things where like even women don't feel like as comfortable as they would like to feel in in, a, in some formats, which I thought was very interesting because I wasn't aware of that. Um, the last time I did anything competitive debating was like two decades ago. So it's definitely mm -hmm. nice to hear uh, a perspective from the new generation. So before we get to that first part, um, you're going to put you on a spot a little bit and see how much do you know about Morocco? Oh, oh my gosh. Okay, <laughs> let's do this. It's all right. Anything is fine. Hmm. Just general things about Morocco. It's, you know, I visited Morocco before. Um, really? Yes, so yes. I've been to Casablanca, I've been to Marrakesh. Um, phase is, is, it was fantastic, but it's been a very long time. So I'm trying to think about things that I remember. I mean, very beautiful country when I visited. Um, that much is, is certain. Um, I can't think of any like trivia things. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's just, very country. I mean, I can't really think of much. No, it's fine. I mean, if you've been to Morocco, that's more than most people would say about Morocco or even know about Morocco. I think that's enough. <laughs> um, so in the last episode, we touched on a lot about like women in Morocco feeling like they don't have the freedom. Well, not the freedom, but I feel like they get uh, attacked a lot online when they express their opinions and voicing their opinions about uh, certain things. And I've also touched on this on the previous episode. By the way, if anyone is watching, I will make a link in the description of this to the previous episode if you want to watch that to catch up to what's going on. So anyway, going back to the question, um, do you find this something similar in the, um, uh, in I guess, female debaters or just uh, women in general in America? Do you think they also some, sometimes get attacked or they get like harsh comments when they make any comment or opinions? Yeah, uh, I think, unfortunately, I will have to agree with that. And I and I certainly do think that there is a parallel between 
um, you know, women facing a lot of discrimination and a lot of backlash, um, you know, not just in Morocco, not just in the United States, but all around the world when they try to stand up. Um, so I think especially, you know, just debate aside, I think that we as a society have, you know, still seen a lot of, um, you know, discriminatory behavior and, and the way that we treat others just in general has been extremely you know, something that that is like a major point of concern where it's sometimes um, inhibiting high quality conversation that we need. And sometimes, you know, the conversation and the topics of discussion that are being brought up in society, like, um, you know, like sexual harassment and, and discrimination, um, those in like gender pay gap, for example, right, the, the numerous sets of topics that are inextricably linked to gender, um, you know, those are contentious points of discussion. But a lot of the time, others feel the need to like put those conversations down and put these women down, um, which is unfortunate because you know, in order to be able to like find a solution together, we need to acknowledge each other's, you know, you know, really like presence and the importance of every single individual being able to have the voice in order to speak up. Um, so then we could truly have those necessary conversations and lines of discourse to actually form policy and move forward together. But insofar as, you know, a lot of online attacks have been rampant, especially throughout the pandemic where, um, you know, you really saw like a standardization in the adoption of like online communication, like Twitter. Um, it, you can clearly see that the the wake of the pandemic brought on a new set of um, really tools and instruments for, for, you know, bigots to use them against women and minorities and, and other vulnerable stakeholders in the status quo. So you've definitely seen like a lot of like discrimination, injustice and disempowerment increase throughout the pandemic. Um, so yeah, it's most certainly an issue um, that we need to critically address and we need to look at from an objective point of view. Okay, um, thank you for your input on that. Um, I think we touched on this a little bit in the last episode, which was like uh, one of the debaters, or I think actually both of them agreed that like some of, some of the root causes of this is that some men are feeling uh, like left out, not being, not involved, uh, a little bit intimidated because, you know, as we progress as a society, we are seeing more women achieving amazing things, more women in leadership positions. You know, there's actually like a few countries in Africa that actually have a female president. So I think we touched on this a little bit. Like we said that like maybe some of the men are just feeling intimidated. Like, you know, uh, some of the men might have a spouse that makes a higher salary than them. And we think that like maybe that contributes to them wanting to attack someone on social media, because, you know, when you are on social media, you're behind the screen. And I'm a firm believer that like when you are behind the screen, it's much easier to say things you would not normally say face to face. Right. Um, yeah, there, there's certainly like the element of somewhat anonymity, but also just like the lack of accountability and responsibility for the words that you're saying. Um, that's really like a trend that we've seen, um, you know, just in general with the rise of the internet. Um, you know, you see like a lot of cyberbullying being like a concern um, for students all around the world online. And I think that on this interesting point that you bring up, um, I think that the accomplishments of women and minorities and, and these kinds of individuals and the reason as to why exactly, you know, men might act in this way certainly can be because they're intimidated. But um, I think that another kind of like facet or, or way to look at it from is um, 
with the rise of of women in like you know taking on these these high salary positions and and high positions of power in government um i think the question becomes if this is necessarily true this is how the way that men think how do we flip that narrative how do we make like the um accomplishments of women and minorities in general something that we can find worth celebrating and how do we uplift these voices and, and find a way to coexist with them um you know when when trying to go for like these like high you know salary positions and jobs and or like positions in government so i think you know even if these mindsets may exist that um, you know, it might be intimidating or it might be like a new concept or novel concept for for like these individuals to take on these high levels of positions and responsibilities and accolades. But how do we really move forward together and, and what can we do in order to increase um, and, and really find a path forward together? Um, because it definitely isn't like a zero sum kind of situation where it's either like one or the other. It just needs to be you or me doing this thing um, or having like this high level um, of position. So I think definitely you need to align your goals and make sure that um, you're, you're really understanding why your fears um, may be influenced and, and how exactly you, you move forward to in order to mitigate those things. Okay, so I have a take on this and you can, uh, you know, uh respond to it whether you agree or disagree but i think we're at like a, a a chapter in history where two things are colliding the first thing being that like everything is online like you can hear a compliment accomplishments about women any corner of the planet as long as you have a smartphone you as small as you have an internet connections and even like many parts of the world like i remember in morocco like you can have an internet connection for 24 hours for like literally 50 cents a day. So that's like very affordable. Just means that more people are getting on the internet. You know, you also have free Wi-Fi. So yeah, like we're all really connected now. I think the other thing that's colliding with this connected world is that for, I'd say with like the last 50 or 100 years, women didn't have a lot of rights in many parts of the world. So I think now we're getting at the point where they are having a lot more rights having a lot more uh, leadership positions. Some of them are even like entrepreneurs and starting businesses. So I think those two things are colliding. And I think that like, I don't really see any other solution but us just to ride the wave out and slowly like adjust to a society where we are all equal. The men is not always gonna be the breadwinner, especially in 100 years from now. So what is, what is your take on that? Yeah, so I think that there's like a certain level of just implicit social change that has been happening, obviously, for the United States. Um, you know, with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, it has been a little bit over 100 years um, since women had voting rights um, or like, you know, granted them for, for once. I think that um, the, on this idea of riding the wave out and kind of letting society do its thing, um, I think that naturally society is on a trajectory where it is true that women and minorities and vulnerable stakeholders are already getting their rights and it's beginning to increase and, and they're beginning to have more power, which is an excellent thing. But I think that in in the attempt to allow these you know women and minorities and individuals to really maximize you know their opportunities in society, I think that sometimes, with the with the rise in of the like these so many like social problems that are happening, um, or maybe like the reemergence of social problems, I think that these individuals should be able to you know take radical action or or you know do anything it takes in order to stand up to it, um, because in the 
you know, in the perspective of trying to let things, you know, kind of like pan itself out, I think that you find it'll take many generations more. And in order to truly expedite that process and make it exponentially easier, um, you know, you need to see people actively standing up and being persistent about actually seeing some change. And I think that in doing that, you're going to cause some social unrest to some capacity. But I also think that it decreases the timeline for you to actually achieve, you know, a desirable, you know, kind of period of history where you see that these uh, individuals have the most amount of rights given to them and most amount of opportunities where it's truly equal with men. And, and that's kind of where we should be. I think our goal as a society should be to move toward that as fast as possible and, and keep like a maintain sustained level of of support and passion and political capital and uh you know financial resources for whatever it takes in order to actually make that happen okay so i think maybe like what i maybe i didn't say the correct way but i don't mean like write it out like just let this abuse happen let this injustice continue Mm -hmm. to happen i'm just saying like i'm like i'm looking at it from like holistically from like the last couple of thousands of years where like Med have always been the breadwinner and now just within ah, the last yeah. like 50 or 100 years they're like seeing that their dna or genetic code has somehow <laughs> miswiring and just circuits are going off in their head and they're finding the only solution is to attack these women um that's what i really meant by that the second yeah. thing i wanted to talk about which i do agree with what you mentioned is that i think like uh, women in minority countries like especially in morocco it's only been like the last couple of decades where the rights have actually been uh, established or uh, reforms have been put in place. So I do think like Western countries, they've definitely got a head start over like Muslim countries, especially countries in Africa. And I think that's why maybe the debaters in our last episode were mentioning like some of the terrible things that they talked about, like some of the trends they seen in Morocco, which some of them I didn't even know about. So that's what I meant a little bit about that. Um, but do you agree with that? Like, you know, obviously Western countries have had a head start in women's rights. Like you, like you mentioned, uh, the, the rights for women to vote is over a hundred years old. Um, I don't know when it is actually in Morocco, but I do know that like, it wasn't until the last king came into power, which was like 1999, that he actually started to make a lot of reforms for women, so. Yeah, um, on your first point, actually, I absolutely agree with you, right? Um, you know, like, it is true that, you know, you're going to, like, see over time that the narrative and the way that men, you know, treat women is ultimately going to flip. And, uh, you know, you're going to kind of, like, break, like, the the conception of males constantly being, like, the breadwinners. Obviously, those narratives are, are rapidly changing, and thankfully so. So I, I definitely agree with you on that. I think, secondly... Um, it is definitely true that that you know Western countries and, and you know Western liberal democracies and like countries in Europe have a head start in terms of really being able to kickstart these these changes and policies. Um, obviously, with uh, a greater timeline and more resources at their disposal, um, you can clearly see that countries like the United States and and England, uh, you know, all around the world, truly, they've they've been able to do these kinds of things. I think comparatively with Morocco, you know, countries in Africa and Asia, um, I think a lot of a lot of the delays might be attributable to, for example, like perhaps you know later independent states. Yeah, I know. For example, like my my parents' heritage from, uh, you know, they're from Bangladesh. It, they only achieved their independence in 1971, right, uh, which is relatively recent given modern history. Uh, so I think that a lot of the reason as to why exactly 
Um, there, there is this delay is because of the fact uh, that, you know, it is very, very recently that these individuals got their social and political rights from, you know, colonizers uh, and, and these like countries, which typically had more power and had greater freedom and, and will in order to truly change. But even still in, in Western countries, it definitely took like a large push to truly change, um, you know, the legislature's opinion and the, the you know public opinion about, um, you know, doing things like granting women uh, voting rights. Uh, so it's definitely like some cultural resistance. Um, but, you know, once that barrier was kind of broken, um, that certainly made it easier. And I think that right now, the position where many countries in Asia and Africa are in are kind of overcoming like that cultural barrier. Um, whereas for, you know, countries like the United States, I think it is reasonable to say that um, some threshold of, of like the cultural barrier had been broken um, sure. a while ago. So I definitely agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, it's definitely true that like, you know, if a country is fighting for their independence and just gain their independence, like a, a few decades after the end of World War Two versus America, which has been an independent country for centuries. I mean, if you're fighting for just having the independence, you're like you're putting the other things on the back burner. You're like, okay, let's get our independence, let's get a functional, stable government, and then we can talk about the other issues in our society. So yeah, that is a very interesting point that we I don't think we even talked about in the last episode. Um, so was there any before we move on to the second part of this podcast? Was there anything in the last episode that was mentioned by our two debaters that you wanted to touch on? Or was there anything that you wanted to like add a little bit more important? I know it was a very long episode, so I don't expect you to remember everything. I think it was over an hour long. Yeah, it was, it was very, very lengthy and very detailed, which I appreciate. Yeah. But um, I do believe that um, one of them remarked about the misconceptions of like religion. Um, and, you know, I wholeheartedly agree, right? Like being like a male of Muslim faith, I think that there tends to be a lot of misconception on the religion and all like these misunderstandings and, and prejudices can really compound a really dangerous effects in our society, both in terms of Islamophobia and also the way that people perceive Muslim and Arab countries. Um, and really, you can see this manifest in debate where a lot of individuals use examples of like, for example, um, take like Iran, right, with uh, the, the Iranian revolution. I think like the lack of education generally about um, you know, the Muslim faith and, and it, like the history of Islam really can it, be twisted in a way that truly mischaracterizes and, and you know, um, puts like many Muslim people in a dangerous position where they feel as though their identity is being attacked. Um, so I think it's very, very easy for individuals to um, look down upon, you know, countries with Muslim majority populations. And I think that sometimes the lack of education debate or like the the misinformation um, in, in the debating space about our, our you know, faith and, and our people can really detriment us in, in the way that people have these kinds of conversations. Yeah, I mean, as you know, as someone who's lived in like uh, four different continents so far, I'm always shocked when I meet someone, they're like, oh, you're from Morocco. Morocco is a Muslim country. Does every woman in Morocco wear a hijab? And I'm just like, like, seriously, like, you've never seen a picture. Yeah. Of so I think that like, it kind of like just, so I, we touched on this in the last episode, the two debaters felt like that most Americans don't know much about the rest of the world outside of America. And 
you know, obviously this is not true because I knew a lot of people who know probably know the world better than university professors in certain topics. But do you feel like generally, like most Americans don't know much about the outside world? They only focus on the uh, the local information. I think that, um, you know, sometimes there's like the tendency to, to generalize and say that the vast majority of individuals from X country, um, you know, they might not be cognizant about, about, you know, other countries and other like kind of like standards and cultures and, and, and traditional like norms. I think that, you know, it's definitely like an individual case by case basis where um, clearly those with more privileged background or more resources that that have like the the opportunities and freedoms associated with having you know more money that they can use to spend on like tutoring and, and you know like going to really like good schools with high quality education and curriculum i think that it's definitely like disjointed in in that yes there are like very very many americans that are like globally aware and have these resources and opportunities at their disposal that they can use in order to educate themselves Absolutely. but then i think that there's like the other half of individuals where maybe it is like the fact that they don't have like the the resources in order to learn about other things right um maybe like the curriculum or like the standards to which um you know we're, we're learning about things is not updated to really account for the global perspectives that we need in our society um so maybe there's like that aspect there right and then i think generally um most americans if they had the opportunity to or if there was some some way to standardize kind of like globalized education one that um, you know, really fosters awareness about all kinds of countries and, and cultures. I think that the vast majority of Americans would definitely take that opportunity. And I think it's just a matter of not thinking about whether or not it, like most Americans aren't aware about something, but what we can do in order to make, um, you know, Americans or really just any people in any country aware about um, others, because as long as you get a, a numerous variety of perspectives and, and you really learn about as much as you can and you have a wide breadth of knowledge, that is when you become a truly like global citizen and you're able to do things like have um, conversation with others at an advanced level. So um, I think that it's definitely like half and half. Like it, it, it can be that, yeah, a lot of Americans are aware about these issues or they're trying to be more aware about these issues, the rise of information online. And then there's potentially the other half of individuals who are not so sure, um, maybe because they aren't aware about it or because they simply don't have the means to do so. Yeah, I think like as society, we tend to generalize more often than we should um, because even now I'm living in Poland and I've been living in Poland for one year. And I always tell people that I was raised in America and like the like 90% of them say like Americans know nothing about Poland. They know nothing about the rest of the world. Obviously, they're also generalizing. But I would say mm -hmm. like, that's not true. Like, I mean, there's a large Polish community in Chicago. There's a lot of Hollywood movies have Polish references. Um, so how could it be that they don't know much about Poland? And some of them just told me like very similar stories. Like they go to someone and they're like, oh, where are you from? They're like, I'm from Poland. They're like, oh, isn't Poland part of Russia? It's like, no, like, okay, you're just, I think like we generalize the comments that tend to offend us or tend to make us a little bit unhappy or sad. I think those become the ones, the stories that we want to share, not the positive stories. We're like, oh, I know Poland. I've been to Warsaw. There's Polish food is excellent. So I think like maybe as a society, we just like remember those negative comments more and share them more. 
Uh, the second thing, I, like the second part of your my my take on your comment is that like there's a lot of videos on the internet that you can find on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, everything where they like there's some person or even some host interviewing random people on the streets and they ask them like questions about the rest of the world, like, hey, you know, uh, what is the capital of Germany? And they will say like uh, Tampa Bay or something like that. I mean, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen those videos where they, they yes, also like yes. show them a map of some country and they're like, what country do you think this is? They're like, maybe Russia, but it's actually America, but just flipped upside down. So I think those are the ones that get the most views and the most comments and they go, they trend a lot. So I think that's what people from Morocco might see more often than like an educated person speaking about uh, a, a topic that could make them appear or not appear, but be to recognize that they know what they're talking about the rest of the world. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think we generally just as a society, you know, like debate aside, uh, we, we take our own experiences and we kind of interpret every similar situation or like the way that we perceive others to be like the same. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like a lot of it is just human psychology. It's the way that we behave. But um, I think another part of it is that there is active social reinforcement of, of these kinds of mentalities. That you know the, this narrative, the stereotype that Americans you know aren't uh, like unintelligent, right? Um, I think that the the numerous amount of stereotypes that that really pervade across societies, not just limited to Americans, but really to anyone, um, I think is really disingenuous. And we we like to see like these kinds of things on the media because we find it to be you know it can be like humorous to us. It can so just tiny. be yeah. like a form of confirmation bias almost, Absolutely. right? Like this is what I've known all along. This is my interpretation of this country. And I feel validated in my own perspective. And, and we as a society really like it when, when our perspectives are reinforced. It's why we've seen like massive problems with echo chambers online, um, you, you know, with like Twitter and misinformation and extremism. Um, so we really see stereotypes it is really the culmination of of the desire to be right or to do things or to, you know, think in ways that are most advantageous or convenient to us as a, as a people um, in, in our identity. So I think that this, this kind of clashing of identity is very, um, you know, apparent in stereotypes and, and we kind of reinforce these stereotypes, not only to, you know, somewhat like ridicule others and put others down, but also because we feel validated in our own identity and we can say that we are unlike them. It really paints like an us versus them mentality that is truly unhealthy in society. No, that's true. That's true. You definitely brought up a, a good point about confirmation bias. I mean, with the exception of my debate world and debate community friends and my profession, actually even my professional world, so outside of the debate community, I'm always shocked when I discuss the topic of confirmation bias with people all over the world. And like, I'm always shocked, like how many people do not even know about this topic or they're not even, they're, they're always like, wow, I never knew this. But now that you've explained it to me, it's so true that confirmation happens like every day of my life. And I think, you know, I think maybe a solution is to bring more awareness of confirmation bias. But do you have any other solutions for this, uh, this topic? Yeah, I'm really a big believer in education. I think that the single most empowering, most influential kind of approach to tackling the way that society, you know, perceives others and, and has like these mindsets 
starts right from the individual. And in order to, you know, really be able to connect with every individual and relay the these kinds of information uh, about like confirmation bias and about the importance of mitigating stereotypes, I think it really begins with having conversations on the individual level, because we in the debating space are kind of in like a, a bubble, right, where we're, we're like, why does the rest of society not think in the way that we do? But we also spend like hours upon hours researching and preparing for cases, right? Definitely. Um, so I think what we need to do is we need to transfer our knowledge and it is our responsibility. The onus falls on us in order to spark these conversations with others and make sure that others are aware, right? Because there is no utility in us as debaters or speakers in, in retaining this knowledge and keeping it limited to rounds, right? It is our responsibility to bring these kinds of like bits of knowledge and you know our ability to speak eloquently and effectively uh, and really be able to have those necessary conversations in, in order to truly make it so that we can um, you know, dissuade people from adopting stereotypes. Obviously, it'll, it's easier said than done. You can't just be like, no more stereotypes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But you you need to start by understanding why someone thinks that way. And I think that another really important thing, something that I truly find um, you know, so amazing about debate is that you have like these communication skills and ability to really empathize with others because you spend so much of your time talking to others. So I think that using those kinds of skills um is truly going to be the thing that makes education most effective. Okay. I I definitely agree with that. Um, I think like one issue with that could be like uh, professionals like my, um, my like adult professionals like myself. Like you're working Monday through Friday, you might have some other commitments, family, children, kids, whatever. I think it's much easier. Not that this is a good thing, but I think it's much easier for us to come home from a long day of work, take care of some of the house things, and just want to be entertained more than want to be educated like it's much easier for me to come home from work sit on the couch and watch a netflix and just watch something entertaining than to like engage in a discussion so maybe like a solution or a counter solution for that is that yes education is key but we should probably educate these topics more at the primary level or the elementary level or even at the high school level because at that time like you can't just say no, I'd rather watch Netflix than go to my history class or something like that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that there are two things to say here, right? Firstly, I think that, you know, kind of establishing these ideas early on is super important. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, really, we begin to form our ideas, uh, really, you know, middle school, high school. Um, so the, the mindsets that we kind of like, create and form in elementary middle school is definitely what we carry with us obviously we mature but much of the, the way that we think about others remains the same so i think in that regard is definitely important to have that in, in primary and secondary schooling i think the second thing to mention is how it's really interesting how we as a society are really really glued to like entertainment and there's so many different sources of communication and, and streams of information um you know, from all over the place, you know, we have the internet, we have like our, we have our phones, we have, you know, computers, we have TVs, laptops, um, tablets, really just about everything you can imagine. So I think another component or another thing that I would amend or add to my answer is perhaps finding ways to, to make, um, you know, the media that we consume 
um, not necessarily one that is built on stereotypes and assumptions uh, and, and just harmful and false narratives for the sake of humor, right? But rather one that, you know, can still have humor, but does it in a different way. Um, you know, maybe it's tackling these issues and it's like talking about these problems and doing it in humorous ways. Like, for example, I know like comedy is a huge thing that that really defined um, the way that I watch entertainment. Like I watched a lot of like The Daily Show, like Patriot Act on Netflix with Hassan Minaj, like so many shows, you know, um, uh, online, you know, throughout middle school is really like a massive inspiration in, in how I perceive comedy to be and how, you know, right now, the vast majority in what it can be. Because notice how they still critically address so many issues in society and they, they acknowledge yeah. the importance of tackling them, but they also do it in ways that are palatable to audiences that really engages people's attention and, and makes them passionate about wanting to deal with these issues. So I definitely think that there's a way that we can change media or, or encourage a certain type of media so that you know there's both like an informing element and also like humor elements, just to be realistic. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that 100%. I'm just thinking of like the decision makers of these programs. Like, is that something they would be willing to accept? Will they have the fear of losing viewership? Would they have the fear of alienating their audience? What is your take on that? Because the decision hmm. makers are the decision. They're the one who decides what the program is going to be, how the theme is going to be. So... Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously behind every great, you know, production or piece of media, there is always like a huge team of like researchers and producers um, and filmmakers and all of that. So I think that in terms of the way that they would deal with like such a rise of, of this kind of entertainment, um, I think it would become kind of one that is like a like kind of like a mindset that is based on on quality over quantity. So given that, you know, if there is an influx of these kinds of entertainment, um, it, it really becomes how do we, you know, what kinds of issues do we talk about? Um, how do we bring up these, uh, you know, issues in a way that, you know, is comfortable for like our audience or maybe, you know, is most appropriate? So I think these are somewhat questions that are already being dealt with and already being considered by many producers before, you know, uploading or airing an episode or a show. Um, so I think these considerations are already being taken into account to an extent, but I think the meaningful difference for the margin of change with the Delta is, um, given that there are going to be so many other shows that are dealing with similar things, how do we make ourselves stand out? And I think that, you know, you know, with like the principles of competition, maybe, I don't know, uh, you could potentially see like an increase in quality or maybe like the incentive structure becomes, how do we do it in a way that is, um, you know, high quality and, and still, you know, delivers the same level of humor and, and like punch. So I think in that regard, it it's just really about maximizing the quality. And I still think that, um, you know, with the rise of these kinds of media, there's probably going to be greater accountability, which is great. Um, so, you know, there's that kind of added benefit to that. Okay. Um, so let's move on to the second part of this podcast, which is where we're going to discuss some of the things that you brainstormed in the document that you sent me. By the way, thank you so much for doing that. That was really professional and kind of you to do that. Um, before we get to that, I just have one quick question. So sure. there was a there's a recent debate movie that came out, I think about six months ago. It was called Girls Talk. Have you seen yes. it? Yes. 
Okay. Um, I've heard about it. I've heard about it. Yes. But you haven't seen it. I have not. Okay. Uh, I'm on the same boat. I haven't seen it either. I've only seen the trailer. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think what you wrote down in the document that you sent me before this uh, episode and the Girls Talk movie, like, go kind of go hand in hand. Because I remember just watching the trailer and the premise of the trailer was that, like, women, female debaters are not treated fairly. They're kind of told that you're a woman, you shouldn't be aggressive or emotional when you speak. And I remember, like, thinking, like, really like is that really going on in american debates like america is like one of the most developed countries in the world because i only i only had the comparison of my moroccan debaters especially the female ones where like in our association like nine maybe not 90 actually yeah 90 about 90 percent of the debaters in our association are all female females have dominated our team for the last couple of wscs they were always the best debaters they were also some of them were even the captains so, but then I read your document. I was like, wow, actually it is some kind of discrimination going on with female debaters. So please tell us more about that because I'm really in the dark on this topic. Certainly. Well, um, I think that, you know, in, in the United States, events uh, and debate events like public forum debate and, and policy debate have been, you know, kind of known or kind of perceived to foster sexist behavior in solidified gender. Mm-hmm. Right. Like judges claiming that passionate female debaters are too aggressive and too assertive really? while validating that those same kinds of styles for males were seen as seen as normal. So I think that a lot of the problems that we see on the American debate circuit in regards to this kind of discrimination um, that is especially apparent through these events, I think, is most certainly the result of just generally like the way that Americans, you know, or really just individuals all around the world may may treat others, right? So I think it is fantastic that in countries like Morocco, you see like a lot of like, you know, women take the helm of like the debate scene. Um, but I think in the United States, the problem particularly comes from um, the way that judges interpret, uh, you know, these kinds of styles. So I think Obviously, there are different sets of events um, between, you know, the, the United States and the rest of the world. You know, the rest of the world, primarily, you know, you have Asian parliamentary, British parliamentary, world schools debate, which is especially popular in the high school level. Right. Um, and then in the United States, you have like a whole really smorgasbord of, uh, yeah. of of events. So I think that, you know, the differences in the way that each event is judged might necessarily lend itself to allowing the judge to make their decision off of you know, who sounds better instead of like the actual quality of the content. And obviously style is always going to remain a very important part of every debate event. But in some, you know, uh, events in the United States, it might be weighted heavier than others or maybe even less than others, which enables, um, you know, individuals or like males in, in public forum debate or Lincoln Douglas to debate to do what we call like spreading, which is like speaking really, really rapidly in order to fit in as much content as possible. I hate that um, and so in my opinion, I'm not really a fan because I think it really takes away from the spirit of debating and how, you know, it's supposed to be like conversational and rhetorical in, and powerful in nature. So I think that, um, you know, the differences in the way that Americans judge different debate events, um, some placing more emphasis on style, which leads to maybe more subjectivity and gender bias. Um, you know, there's that 
end of the spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum where it's just all content no style speak as fast as possible you know if you can out you know outspeak or outpace your opponent you win the debate i think that that kind of narrative is a little silly um so i'm not really a fan of you know either spectrums and i think we kind of need to reach like a, a point where we we see like cultural competency and fortunately we see like the national speech and debate it's national speech and debate association which is the united states like governing body for speech and debate do things like put out judge training so i do think that there's some progress that needs to be highlighted and, and there are advancements that we are making as a debating space in order to actually mitigate those issues yeah um i was fine first of all this is just kind of like mind-boggling for me i can't believe this is actually happening I, like I like I said just a few minutes ago, like when I saw that trailer, I was just like, really? Like, is this really happening? Like, like how could this be happening in like one of the most developed countries in the world? But um, so f like like for our association or like we come from a the world schools and British parliamentary background and we don't really see that like uh, discrimination against female debaters versus male debaters. So I think what you're trying to say is that these maybe two specific formats in the United States circuit have this issue if i understand you correctly yeah i mean it's more than like public forum debate and policy debate like there's also yeah. like lincoln douglas debate which sure. you know is usually added into the mix in terms of events that are of of some concern um so i think also there's like world schools debate and british parliamentary debate or or um you know at least for British parliamentary debate, it's more big on like the, the collegiate or like university circuit, whereas world schools debate is kind of on the on the rise in high schools across the United States. So I think that the same standards to which that these two events are judged probably are more balanced than that of public forum debate or Lincoln-Douglas debate or policy debate, where there is more heavy emphasis on fitting in as much content as possible. Um, you know, whereas for other events in the United States, like Student Congress, it is heavily based on on how the judge perceives you and there are different like kind of like judging philosophies or paradigms that um, these judges go off of. They rank individuals, you know, like 15 students it, like or like legislators or debaters in a room. They rank them one to nine. And, and it's and, it, you know, you can see especially there, there is room for a lot of like gender biases and, and you know, preconceptions uh, or preconceived notions to really take shape. So I think that it's definitely like the, the events lend themselves to this, but it's also like um, the the ability to kind of surmount those obstacles and, and, and struggles really starts with the judges, but also the debaters themselves. Um, so there's really like two avenues to which we can ameliorate this issue. And um, I think that there's already a lot of action being done for, you know, the judges part where there's like more like judge training and more, you know, um, emphasis on the fact that you should not let biases really like dictate um, your decision or your ballot. And then for the debaters, I think a lot of like the solution comes from the things that we talked about earlier, like improving education, um, yeah. you know, doing things earlier on to really be able to surmount those kinds of situations. Well, yeah, I was actually going to uh, uh, ask you about this, but I think you mentioned it already. So the NSDA is providing like more training for these judges. I do think that's probably one of the best solutions just to make like have everyone on the same page, not have one judge who does a, judges a particular way and another judge judge a different way. Um, so other than the two the, the solutions that you offer, do you see any other solutions to this problem? Because... I think for most people, especially maybe some of our viewers who watch our episodes in Africa, they might be a little bit like shocked as much as I am that this even happens in the first place. Like, 
especially because a lot of African debaters are more into British parliamentary and world schools format. And the issues that some African WCC team face is that they're not treated fairly because they're African versus mm. now what we're hearing from you and the girls talk movie is that they're not treated equally because they are a woman. Yeah. So we think that, um, you know, aside from what we kind of discussed in terms of like education and media, I think that um, those are like probably the two primary kind of like approaches I would suggest. And I think I would definitely stand solidly in supporting those two. Um, but I think, um, you know, as a facet or as a component of those two solutions, I think just regular conversations and, you know, this very interaction, you know, like us having this podcast, we're, we're more knowledgeable and more aware about the issues that might pervade our own debating circuit. And and we kind of see how, you know, there, there are some similarities, but there's also differences in the kinds of problems that we face. So, you know, for like women, right? Like the reinforcement of, of like these kind of like high, like male hierarchy or patriarchal structures, uh, you know, strengthens these systems in debating world. And I believe that in speech and debate, you know, it's an activity that is intended to give everyone an equal voice, but societal norms and standards, you know, in, in you know, a, aside from debating have perpetuated and turned speech and debate into a microcosm of the world with the same problems we're attempting to solve and have discourse about, right? So I think that, um, you know, a lot of our conversations have focused on the struggle of women and minorities and, and these vulnerable stakeholders. But I think a lot of it also needs to be weighted. And, you know, a lot of the conversation and discourse that we have need to be weighted towards celebrating successes of women, right? Through like through like the girls talk, you know, like um, PBS, uh, you know, media piece. I think that is a great first step in really highlighting the the advancements that many women have made throughout the debating circuit. And I think that generally we can do more as, as a society to focus not only on the struggles and how we can deal with those kinds of issues, but also the successes, um, which I think is just as important and it really validates uh, individuals to keep going. Sure, sure. Well, um, that was a very interesting discussion, very enlightening for me, and I'm sure it will be the same for our audience as well. So before we end the episode today, uh, I think I always like to end the episodes on a positive note. So let's talk about a positive trend or trends that you've seen in the debating community or in uh, the United States that maybe we not be we might not be aware of because we're from Africa. So share us some positive trends or trends that you've been seeing in your communities. Yeah, I think I can fortunately say that there has been a lot of progress uh, uh, you know achieved on these same issues that we discussed today. So um, we've seen like a, a rise in, in nonprofit organizations and debate initiatives in order to, you know, really expand accessibility into the speech and debate space. Um, so I know that for myself, at least, um, I'm involved with two organizations, uh, one of which is like a World Schools Debate Expansion Initiative um, called Team Orion, where we send, um, you know, teams to tournaments uh, internationally, and we kind of create like a platform for individuals to communicate with others and, and be able to compete internationally in World Schools Debate and Parliamentary Debate. Um, so there's like that. And then there's also, you know, uh, this other organization that uh, I help run called Equality and Forensics, which um, creates resources, uh, provides free tournaments, free tutoring, 
um, to individuals who request it, and we really keep it uh, as open as possible. So I think that, you know, it's not just limited to these two organizations or institutions. It's also like many others have become cognizant and, and about these issues and have actively discussed it in our space. You also see really wonderful and brilliant pieces about speech and debate accessibility on the national final stage of, of the, you know, for example, in 2019, there is this uh, event called Program Oral Interpretation which is a kind of like a speech event that really analyzed, um, you know, this very topic about how women are discriminated against in speech and debate. And, and you know, it, it's a very interesting piece that I can certainly send you or can be linked in the description. But it, it's basically contending with these issues. And you're seeing more people talk about these issues and find solutions to it, doing things, you know, doing more than just talking the talk, right? They're like walking yeah. the walk. <laughs> they're, they're doing things actively in order to, to, you know, try their best to solve these situations. And I, I think that's really admirable. And I'm sure, you know, it's happening to some capacity in the international space. And I really encourage, you know, individuals to do whatever they can in order to decrease in inequities, right? I try to be like an optimist and a firm believer in the idea that we have the self-efficacy or the ability to decrease these inequities and make debate like a super accessible activity that our community envisions. So we think that, you know, contributions from like these organizations, but even like former debaters who are still active in the debate community, like organizing tournaments, raising funds and donating to debate organizations. Like Jason Xiao had like a wonderful like malaria charity workshops, um, you know, adjudicating for tournaments, coaching students, et cetera. You know, it's really, really beneficial because in order to sustain the speech and debate space, we need individuals to come back to this community and, and really be able to be the high quality judges and, and tournament organizers that we really need right now. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, definitely please do send me the link so I can add it to the description of this video. Um, also, if you're watching this, just be aware that our podcast will be available on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So you can always check out our podcast there if you're on the road, you just want to listen to it. So once again, thank you, Ari Karim, for so much for taking the time to talk to me about these issues. Um, it has been really wonderful to speak to you. You had some really interesting ideas and you've like obviously enlightened me about some things that I wasn't aware of. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, do you want to say a nice little farewell to our audience? Yeah, um, I mean, well, thank you very much for watching. I really appreciate it. And, you know, no matter who you are, whether you're a debater, a adjudicator, you know, a coach, I hope that there is something that you're able to take away from this. And, you know, I certainly encourage everyone to do everything they can in order to deal with these situations, because I believe that everyone has the ability to do something in order to to further make speech and debate the, the best space that it can be. So, you know, thank you very much, Mr. Shabani, for having me. You know, I really appreciate the, having this platform. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to, you know, future podcast episodes and, and the work that is being done both by the United States and the international community. So thank you very much. And uh, I hope this was enjoyable to listen to. Yep. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for everyone else for listening and watching. And we hope to see you in our next episode.